Recorded live in Manhattan's East Village at St. Mark's Church in the Bowery, this is The Poetry Project. Tonight, of course, David Anton is here. We're thrilled about that. Um, I am going to cede the floor to the editor of this wonderful new volume uh, called Selected Talk Poems of David Anton, and it's brought out by the University of New Mexico Press. It's edited by Stephen Fredman, who's going to make this introduction of David Anton tonight. Uh, Stephen Fredman is a professor of English Literature and American Studies at the University of Notre Dame. His most recent book is Contextual Practice, Assemblage, and the Erotic in Post-War Poetry and Art. Uh, and with that, let's get the evening started. Thank you, Simone, and thank you, everyone, for coming out tonight to hear a brand new talk performance by David Anton. Uh, I'm here to introduce him just because uh, we've worked together on editing a selected talk poems from the three New Directions books that David published beginning in the 1970s. And these books had gone out of print, and for me as a university professor, it was devastating because I couldn't teach them in my classes any longer. So um, when I learned that the University of New Mexico Press was starting a series called Recencies, bringing back into print uh, work by contemporary writers that was unjustly uh, allowed to lapse, uh, I immediately proposed uh, doing a selection from David's books, and they were very eager to uh, publish that. So I went through um, the three books, Talking at the Boundaries, Tuning, and What It Means to be Avant-Garde, and chose what I think of as um, the strongest, most representative pieces, and also the pieces that we could fit together into a single volume. As it is, it's a 400-page book, and um, so it, it was hard to, to, uh, to make the selections. But, um, we chose poems that, that I think will give you a, a really great sense of the range of David's extraordinary output, which uh, has really in many ways revolutionized not only poetry but performance art, and I would venture to say philosophy and art criticism as well. David is, is really a unique figure in that he's able to bridge effortlessly those kinds of disciplinary divides and uh, he does so to some extent because he really believes in the vernacular. That the vernacular is something capable of taking the most uh, recondite ideas and rendering them absolutely useful in one's present life. And so David talks and he doesn't lecture and he doesn't uh, uh, in a sense try to, um, to come up with a theoretical lingo that would somehow render his work uh, opaque in any way. In fact, he wants to speak directly about things that we don't understand. So it's not as though it's simple, it's just that you can't understand life. And David is, is absolutely adamant about the ways in which we have to recognize our complete incapacity to understand what's going on. So the, uh, the title of, of, of the volume uh, comes from the title of one of David's poems, and it's How Long is the Present? Uh, but there's no question mark. So really, 
the present is very long. And in the present are all the problems we don't know how to deal with. We don't really know how to come to terms with. And that's the territory in which David wants to situate his understanding of what's going on in the contemporary world and in the larger world of ideas. So I'll stop talking about David because it's much more fun to listen to him. So please help me welcome David Anton. I, I gotta stand close enough to the microphone in order to be heard apparently. This microphone requires affectionate treatment. I'm just walking around it to see if it will continue to send infinitely good messages. Actually, it's interesting that being here, because it has so much of a past with, that I've been part of, and so much of his past is still present. Like, I find it hard to believe that Paul Blackburn is not over there lying on the floor with a tape recorder and, and a flask of brandy. Or that some people on Monday nights, which were open readings, used to come and give the most bizarre and charming in ways, many bizarre and charming works you would never have heard any, any other way. And there's something good about hearing them, because often the world of poetry that people are introduced into by people much older than they are is seen as having certain rules and regulations or regularities, none of which are necessary and all of which are possible. So I, as a, as a writer or artist writer, I write on these works, but the works, the work I do, probably familiar to most of you, is what I do is I, to find out what I think I do a performance piece, a talk piece, to find out what I think about something I've been thinking about a long time, and I haven't been thinking it through enough. So it leads me into the question often that I ask myself, would I have ever become a talk poet if I hadn't supposed the complete inadequacy of our surrounding aesthetic system? I found myself part of it, and I found it tedious. <laughs> so I said, why don't I, I said to myself, why don't you just go and ask yourselves the question and see what you can do with an answer? So that's what I've been doing, asking myself the question and seeing what I can do for an answer. So it leads me to where I am. I, some time ago, a couple of years ago, not so long ago, Lynn Tillman, Charles Bernstein, and I were part of the triple, triple hitter, triple header poetry reading. And I, we tried to address certain things there in the nature of our, of our lives that are hard to address because we're afraid to be vulnerable to, to, to offense of some kind or another. And I'm a poet who is often willing to be offensive, but in the, but in the interest of truth. So we had this reading, and then I made it. I wrote, have a written piece that 
came of it. And the written piece is published in a magazine called Golden Handcuffs Review, one of the best magazines around, run by Lou Rowan. And I've been a contributing editor there for some time. Anyway, I was trying to address the problems of how we manage <clears throat> to, to deal with the nearly impossible to experience. I had been told, I, I mean, judged to be a victim of Parkinson's. And I didn't like being considered a victim. <laughs> and, and I never thought of myself as a goddamn victim. But I hadn't thought enough about Parkinson's, which puzzled me. It seemed to be described as if it were a single package, and that you suffered an affliction, and you gradually deteriorated to the point at which they could get rid of you. And it didn't seem that way to me. It seemed to me there was a kind of variability of judgments. First of all, the whole, the whole theory of Parkinson is a mess. There are significant key elements that are known about it, but they don't know what the hell causes it. They don't know what kind of reactions are involved. They don't know what, side, what effects it has on the people who have it. I mean, look, you don't see a tremor, do you? I don't either. So I think, well, maybe if the tremor isn't the key issue, what the hell else is? And I said, so I, found, I had to find something that I could regard as not totally nonsense. I learned <clears throat> that damaged mitochondria are associatable with, with, with Parkinson in the way that dopamine is associated with Parkinson. According to the myth, the Parkinson myth of the neurologists, who I believe are not conducting a clinical practice, but rather a spectator sport, <laughs> that the dopamine is more than is excreted or flooded into the system from by its, by its entry into the communication system of the nerves. Neural networks are in fact dying all the time. And they're not being replaced by enough to, for the dopamine to keep you in good shape. Apparently, what the dopamine does when it's with you is it's part of the part of the system of neural circuitry that lets you make judgments about physical space. Like, I, as a kid, I never had any trouble going through a doorway. Now, I don't have trouble going through doorways now either, really, but the reason is different. Normally, my left shoulder would hit a doorway at the edge if I didn't think about it. Now, why is that? Something about the insufficiency of dopamine in the brain of the 
Well, it's the insufficiency of the amount of dopamine that is being sent to the rest of the nervous system would have prevented the necessity of me to think about whether the hell I can get through the doorway. Getting through the doorway requires a bodily self-image that is below the threshold of consciousness. Otherwise, you have to say, do I have to be careful how I go through this door? And I do. So I say, how do I get through the goddamn door? I say, move a little more to the right, David. And it works. <laughs> so who thought that the prefrontal cortex could come to the aid of the more primitive parts of the brain and saying, saying they're there. They're there, little one. <laughs> Don't be worried. We will bring our wisdom to you. We will help get dopamine into the brain by having two forms of dopamine one of which is it will cross the blood-brain barrier, and the other one will stay outside and cheer. <laughs> so I wanted to represent my rather combative relationship to the diagnosis, which at first I thought was all bullshit. It wouldn't even been discovered I was going, I thought I had a kind of tendonitis of a, of the high upper back near the bison, moving toward under the arm. And the, the technician who I was going to see, who was supposed to be treating me for tendonitis, said, you know, there's no response over there to the, the, these nerve stimuli. You must, you must have Parkinson. I say, why must I? Is it in fashion? <laughs> He said, well, that's what they say. If you don't really trust us, go see another see a neurologist, and he will confuse you thoroughly. I went to see five neurologists in succession, all very unpleasant people <laughs> who I was helping to support. <laughs> and I still couldn't see it. Like, it seems that the situation that you face, or that I face in Parkinson's mainly, is my sense of spatial relations is damaged. And I can compensate for it, as I said, by invoking the prefrontal cortex and saying, God damn it, 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 it the car on my left, on my right, the car on my right is closer than I think it is. So it's just another piece of it compensatory understanding, hardly different from most things we have to do. Yet I felt somehow that in dealing with my, my own self, I'm dealing with everybody else who has somewhat similar situations, not of illness, but of a sense that things that have been made like mechanical and, and, and inevitable turn out not to be inevitable and not quite so mechanical as all that. So I, coming after doing the piece called Writing in the Dark, which I, I rather like, I found that I had overstated my victory over Parkinson's. The last few weeks, I've been finding myself troubled 
by a sense of instability. That is not the sense that I, they talk about people falling. Parkinson's people may very well have, you may very well fall. I fell three times in the last two weeks and none of those three times didn't have anything to do with Parkinson's. No, it's very funny. I mean, everybody attributes the villainy to one particular villain. But it turned out that one of, the, one of these mad occasions, our living room has a two, two levels. One level, lower level and the upper level. And there is, we have a figure, a 19th century statue of a sweet looking naked lady who was an advertisement for the, 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 the great fairs whorehouses. And she's very lovely standing there in the corner. Uh, she's about, she's about Ellie's size. And she weighs more. I mean, she weighs more than Ellie. And I was trying to, to address something that was, there's a, there are two high, very high windows over this, over this area. And to reach them, I have to deal with either a ladder or stretch myself out rather more considerably. And while reaching, I took a step backward. Prefrontal cortex had forgotten, or maybe it was the memory system that should have told the prefrontal cortex, there's a step behind you, jerk. It didn't, it didn't warn me, and I stepped back, tripped over the higher step, and was falling down. Ellie immediately rushed over to help me and to protect the statue, which looked like it was going to fall over, too. And it was falling over, and as I was falling backward, No, I know you wanted to protect me, but you also wanted to protect the statue, as I wanted to, which is why, while falling, I was trying to be very careful not to let the statue hit the ground. I like that statue. And so that was one fall, no Parkinson relation, whatever. I had another one which was stupider than that. I was working, I work out, I love working out with, with weights and gravity resistant things. And I work out regularly with, I have a trainer who is one of the, one of the best volley, beach volleyball players in the country. <laughs> yeah, called, his name is Mike Piacek, a good Czech name. Anyway, Mike is a marvelously amiable six foot four inches guy who is a wonderful trainer. He's always encouraging me. I've just, you know, I've just, I just passed 37 push-ups, and I'm going to go on for some more. He said, awesome, David, awesome. <laughs> if I had only done 22, he would have said awesome also. But somehow, when he says awesome and I do five more push-ups, it feels to me we've done something. And so that was one where I was working out one day when he was not able to make it. And I, I was working out by myself doing the various things, the, the weight lifts and the, the pulls and all sorts of stuff, pull-ups. 
And I do a lot of pull-ups, so, but that's the kind of exercise that I find very easy to do. But I, I was doing a chest pull, and the cables, I wrapped the cables around the bow of the tree off my back porch. I thought I had it securely in place. I went a few steps away and pulled back on it, and it was fine. I did the second one. The straps, the elastic straps slipped off the bow of the tree, and I was propelled backward like a torpedo from a <laughs> torpedo launching me. I went flying across the space, landing on my back, taking the, the, taking the shock of it on my hands, which was smart up to a point, because my head didn't get hit, at least. And I would be very offended if I had done my head any harm. I live by my wits, and I, and I really don't like to have no, have no mind. <laughs> I didn't want a fractured skull, and I didn't wind up with it. I wound up with a very uncomfortable pain in my back and one broken finger. You know, when you say one broken finger, you get the illusion that it must be very trivial. But I had to put on a goddamn cast. And then we went to the, local, to the local urgent care people. And they said, oh, yes, we will put it in the cast. And I waited for an hour and a half with Nedida, our, Nedida, our house manager. She and I are kind of getting exasperated with the urgent care people. And finally, they call me in. And they're going to put a cast on my arm. The casts are no longer like those plaster casts. They're, much, they're, they're more flexible and maybe easier to take. But the problem is, first of all, they got to get, get the angle that the radiologist needs to get a picture of something that nobody believes is there. My general practitioner didn't think I had broken anything. Nobody, I, the orthopedist didn't think that anything was wrong. But the radiologist said it is, there is a fracture there, a hairline fracture, and you better, better do the cast. So the cast people come out. They take a half an hour talking about other things, and they start to wrap my arm after about a half an hour of waiting. They wrap it. It takes five, five wraps. They look at it. They go to the specialist, the, radi the radiologist. He says, it's not the right angle. So it comes off. Then they do it a second time. He comes back and says, it's not the right angle. He does it a third time. He says, still not the right angle. I said, you guys must, you must not have a lot of experience with gas. <laughs> and they eventually, after four tries, I said, that's it, baby. I take the consequences of figuring it will work or, or it won't. I'm not going to go ahead and get that cast put on again. So my, uh, my, my, my finger is not, not a problem, but the, the arm that has been twisted to fit under the, the radio, radiological camera is really aching. And I've been dealing with this stupid finger thing for three weeks. And what I most resent about it is it interferes with my being able to work out. And the pain is bad when, when, when I'm walking in the, across the space 
or standing up for a long time. I'm standing up here, it doesn't bother me. But the pain from it can be considerable. And there's an annoying thing, the way in which, it leaked, in which the demons of Parkinson are subtler and they work out, they work out their victories by sneaky methods. So here I am trying to figure out what I'm really dealing with in the pain of my back. The pain of my back is almost all gone. But it comes back when I'm struggling to behave as if I didn't have Parkinson's. I have to be able literally to fight off the misinformation of the system, around the system. And I'm pretty successful at it. He said, if you walk around like this, he says, they said, walk around to start with a big step. You know, take a big step forward, and then you'll be able to go forward again. I said, how big a step? He said, as big a step as you can. So I'm waiting, and I'm going like that. And I'm afraid of my balance in the situation, though I have never fallen as a result of my balance. So there's a, an anxiety level that I don't like. And, and what, make, what makes it difficult is suddenly you're walking, you're walking along, and you're thinking of you're thinking of Plato, and <laughs> and, and, the, and the engine of your car, <laughs> and suddenly you come to a place where you freeze up. You suddenly, for some reason, have a sense of uncertainty, and you freeze up. And I know the only thing I have to do if I freeze up is to go like this. It's stupid, but. It gets me moving again, and then I'm not, st I'm not stuck to the thing like a, like a butterfly pinned, pinned to a, a, a piece of cork. So I, I have to have a different kind of war with, with Parkinson to overcome it. And because I, oh, you can only overcome it if you don't care about it. You have to figure a way that, in a certain sense, I learned a great deal from Parkinson's. There's an, there's an upside to it. I learned to understand the way in which I could deal with certain situations that I hadn't anticipated. And what I also learned was that I had lost something that I really didn't think I had lost. I always assumed that there is unconscious thinking. And I've been convinced that there are plenty of good testimonies to the existence of unconscious thinking, that we think below the level of consciousness, and then it emerges into consciousness in some way. It's not exactly a Freudian, although there are relations I have to Freud, the way I'm trying to look at it. But apparently, one thing I, that gives me a certain degree of certainty that underground, th that, that unconscious thinking is interesting. Is because I realized, how is it that when you're having a conversation with someone and they say something interesting to you, you have an immediate response to it and seem to have apprehended it because you were thinking about it all along and you're never without a response quickly. Now maybe I'm extraordinarily quick in my responses to things, but everybody seems to be able to have this instantaneous take when you're in the middle of a when you're in a conversation with somebody else, they're in a conversation with themselves, in conversation with you.
and they're in a conversation with themselves. So in a certain sense, the multiplicity of discourses that go on before thinking emerges into the light is astonishing. And I've been thinking about this because I had started out to say that I became a talk poet because I wanted to have a poetry that had the music of thinking. And the closest I could get to the music of thinking was the music of talking. Not singing, but talking. And I, looking it over carefully, I, I realized I had commentary to make about the puzzling character of the culture that was unwilling to deal with it. Actually, the most interesting first example of being dealt with very well is, Freud, is Freud's interpretation of dreams. He's interested in something other than what I'm interested in. But he does suggest certain things about the nature of, unconscious, of thinking at the unconscious level. And one thing he warns you against, he warns you against narrative. He said, dreams, and this is about dreams, he's not saying about everything else. Dreams are not narrative entities. They're a collection of elements that look like they are, but they basically don't have an overall gestalt that, you would call, that I would call a story. Freud doesn't express himself so modestly. So let me ask you about this. Let me tell you. There's a story that, that he tells in the, in, the, in, the, in the interpretation of dreams. He tells this story, which he calls a beautiful story. And it concerns a man who was one of his patients who had a dream that he was in a, in a horse-drawn bus on the road out of Vienna. And on this road, or along this road, there's a, a, a scruffy, a sh shabby bar, which Freud then announces in the middle of the so-called free associations of the, uh, of the patient. Freud says, which is incorrect. And he calls, what? Why are you telling me? What do I care if it's incorrect that there's a house, there's a, there's a bar, somewhere outside of Vienna. And he says it's incorrect, there, it isn't, there isn't one there. Okay, maybe he's right. So he says, then we arrive at the inn and there's a theatrical production going on there in which sometimes, sometimes I'm part of the audience and sometimes I'm part of the, the acting. Then a quarrel breaks out. The people who are, had, to, had to change their, all of them had to go back to Vienna and had to change their clothes before they went back. So that in the meantime, the, the fight comes over this, that the people in the upstairs who had to use the upstairs room to change in were pissed off at the people down below because they were taking too much time changing their clothing. Now, I read this and I said, what the hell difference did it make to the people in the upstairs area whether the other people were continuing to get, out and get dressed or not? With no, no theatrical group would give enough of a damn about nudity for this to be the issue. So he must mean something else by this. 
Freud doesn't question it. There's a question you have of like issue, and what it was is it was also the, the assignment for costume change had been given to these people as soon as they arrived. And they said, you, you, and you, and you are going to be living, you're going to be changing downstairs. You, you, and you are going to be changing upstairs. Nobody seemed to have protested. But when it was happening, it caused a fight. Now, at some point, the patient said, I was walking on the road back to Vienna, an uphill slope. But I was walking with such laboriousness, such weightedness of movement, that I wasn't moving at all. Till an elderly gentleman came up to me, joined me, and started bad-mouthing the king of Italy. <laughs> at which point, I was able to go on. Now, you would think in a story like that, the first thing you would do is go to the king of Italy, because it makes the story. Not for Freud. Freud likes the, the being upstairs or downstairs is more important. <laughs> it's more important because it metaphorically stands for superiority or inferiority. And he goes on like this all over. And there is the king of Italy still being bad-mouthed, and nobody's doing anything about it. Nobody's justifying the bad-mouthing. Now, I happen to have the advantage of not being dead yet. And I happen to know that Umberto I was a nasty son of a bitch who, when the people were starving in Milan, sicked the army on them with real grape shot and killed many of them, for which he was rewarded by Umberto I of Italy. So I can imagine somebody bad-mouthing the king of Italy. But why don't they ever say, Freud ever say anything about this? Is it possible that, that this event, which took place in the 1890s, the, 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 the riot, putting down the repression of the rioters happened in the 1890s? This was the book, Freud's interpretation of dreams was published somewhere around 1900, sometimes a little bit, a little bit earlier, sometimes a little bit later. But whatever it is, it was a time in which you could imagine that a reasonably informed reader or a newspaper reader would have had strong opinions about Umberto I. So that's the first part of the riddle is, why didn't Freud say anything about this? Surely he could have anticipated his readers not knowing much about Umberto I of Italy. But you don't find out. So I'm still waiting to find out what, is, what does Freud have in mind when he says this is not a narrative. What he means is it's a collection of, a collection of images out of which you pick things, out of which the dream picks things. Like, you imagine an image, and there's a lot of reasons for that. Imagine an image as if it were a tarot card. Only tarot was not the game that it played. But it played a game like that, in which the, you inspected a group of tarot cards 
wondering what, what connects them into a series. Is it, the, is it the, like the, you know that the ace of spades is a higher card than the king of spades? Or do you know, know it partially? That this tarot card wanders off into the, into the sequ sequence of things that it's related to, the chain of metonymies. You keep thinking of it. The king of Italy, Umbrella the first. Something must be there. Is it those goddamn Italians? What is it about Umberto the first? He's a merciless dictator. All right. Is that the only possibility for him? Why did it liberate this guy going back to Vienna after having screwed around in an in a amateur theatrical production? There are many questions I would ask. The, the Freud response to the short story he was presented with reads like an elegant short story and more, uh, more original than something by Theodore Fontana. So I say to myself, wait, screw around, let's not screw around with this, but let me, let me ask the question about narrative, which I realized I was more interested in than dreams. I think it maybe one should ask the question, what do people use narrative for? When do they resort to narrative? And then I said, I know when. When they're trying to explain something and give someone the sense of something happening that they were not present at, and that the narrator seems to have been present at, and the narrator creates, recreates the situation, miming the, the, the position of the, of the, of the audience, but what, what is this about? Why, why do we use narratives to do this? And the answer is it doesn't matter why. It's that that's what we resort to. A, a few weeks ago, I was sitting next to Ron Feldman, the, the marvelous gallery owner. And, he was, and we were talking about our past. And he said, you know, David, people have asked me how I got into being an art dealer. And I tried to explain that when I got out of four years of, four years of law school, I thought, I'm going to be subjected to this kind of life for the rest of my life. No way. Now, at this point, Ron Feldman didn't have to persuade me that it happened, that he made the decision this way. So he didn't enact the narrative to defend his statement because I was too agreeable. What if I had said to him, Ron, how could you use up thousands of dollars of tuition to sit and listen and be bored with the legal absurdities of some form of government. He would have said, but David, I didn't care what it cost. I said, why didn't you care what it cost? If you didn't have the money, you would have cared what it cost. 
you don't go to Yale on, on, you know, on chicken feed. So in a way, narrative shows up when it's necessary as a persuasive force. And then I realized it is a, look, I had an experience. I'm always working in weird jobs. All my life, I w couldn't stand working for the establishment. So every job I ever had was weird. And they were not weird, weird in different ways. On the strength of my science background, which was pretty strong, and my linguistic background, which was quite good, they hired me to, be a, to, to handle the, the choices that were made. They used to publish, it was, it was a firm called Pergamon Press, which published scientific books, most many of them translations from European languages. And they needed someone who could make these judgment calls, write a summary of why we don't want to publish this book or do. And they said they already had somebody who did that but he was overloaded. I said, okay, I'm sure I can do it because it was a pleasure for me to pick up the telephone and have somebody talking at me and talking at me in Czech. I didn't know who, who would come to the phone working for that company, no matter who it was. But I realized that I, I used to be responsible for the entire German uh, patent publications. And I used to translate many of them myself. But what was interesting is, in this circumstance, I was working for a company. I, they hired me, and I was working for this company that seemed to be reasonable. They, had, they owned the bookstore in the carriage trade part of East Manhattan. And they, had, they published books that I had seen but sometimes there's something different about this. And I decided, I, I, it's like I was looking for trouble. And I found that there was a book, an obscure book was published in Germany in which what was described was a, and patented was a me method for extracting hydrogen from water and using it as water as a fuel. And it, it, it sounded fantasy-like, but I said, all right, if that's the case, let's get it translated. I, I called the Signal Corps, my friends at the Signal Corps, and they immediately said they entrusted us with the translation. I, all I asked for was a modest amount of money to pay the translator. And I would want the rights to do what I could, what, to publish the rest of the book as the agent of, of Pergamon Press. And I told the people of Pergamon Press, we're not publishing this as a book. We're publishing it as a, as a collection of notes. And it's, gonna, it's, a, it's a radical experiment. And we're going to charge $120 a copy. <laughs> and they didn't question me. They never questioned anything I ever did. So it was. It, it was fine, only it was very fine. It got finer and finer. And the company made a fucking fortune out of this thing. And they called an emergency meeting. 
I said, why? They said, we were trying to lose money. <laughs> they were trying to set it off as a loss. They had to pretend that they were paying a great deal of money to manage our finances of my sub-company, the, the, the translating company itself. And that's what they finally did. They called a meeting together of all the high important people in there. There was the president of the company. There was the vice president of the company was a man named Ladislav Maintani. And the, the controller was a guy named Straka. He said he was Swiss, but obviously sounded like he was Czech. They had a German ex-Luftwaffe pilot, a very amiable, pudgy <laughs> German, who drank incessantly. Every time I had to see him, he would drink, drink himself under the table. And I would sort of lift him out from under there and gradually get him a taxi. But they realized he didn't know what the hell he was doing. And soon I was directing the company. And I was not too happy because I wanted to go write this novel I was working on. And I said, called up my tenure and I said, look, Vladislav, I really would, I really would like you to fire me. He said, why do you say that? I said, because then I would get unemployment insurance and it would be like a fellowship for 26 weeks. <laughs> he said, you Americans are very strange. I said, no, we're strange and you're proposing to me to take this as a deduction off our profits and show it as a loss. I said, something must be strange about us to find you not strange. So in the end, they let me do it, but not before they, they tested me. And then he said, listen, what would, you, would you, what would you do if we offered you the directorship of, of this French publishing company? Suddenly, my ears lit up. Yeah, I would be director of a publishing company that published important mathematical treatises. It's not tremendously interesting to do, but I would be based in Paris and I could modernize the publishing company. It was tempting, but I was a little nervous about it. And people have asked me why I was nervous about it. And the answer is, if they did this favor to me, I owed them a favor in return. And I had the feeling that it was a business they were in that I didn't want to be in. I realized later that they were an instrument of information sale. In other words, they were spies. <laughs> but spies for whom? It would seem spies for anyone. Like spy for hire, fetching blonde capable of seducing German and Russian physicists. <laughs> fetching was always the word I liked. So this career of this, at one point I said, I really would love to meet the guy who put this firm together. 
And he showed up in he showed up in America. His name was Captain Maxwell. <laughs> he showed up and he appeared in our, in our office, and they introduced our various people to him. And each one said, "I do this, I do that, and I do the other." And I said, "I." I choose the things we publish, and I arrange to get them published. And he said, good show. <laughs> and I looked at him in his startlingly fashionable, over-fashionable pinstripe suit. And I did somehow didn't believe this guy. And it, was, it just didn't make sense. Then later I heard that he had become very rich. And the reason he became very rich was he got into the translating game in a very funny way. At the end of the Second World War, everything was a chaos. And it turned out that the Ger Germans had stored all of Bayer's important patented inventions <laughs> in the town of Leverkusen. And this, this town was, had this stuff there. And at one point, nobody knew about all this, but at one point, some American general asked to be informed about what, where, where that collection of things was. And what they told him was, it was things were very confusing in those days. And a young officer, a young British officer, I believe, arrived with a driver in a truck and took all the documents for, 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 the, for the U.S., for, the, for the, Brit, the Brits and the Americans. Nobody ever had saw those documents leave the hands of Captain Maxwell. Maxwell made a fortune for selling off these, these documents. Then I heard of another thing about Captain Maxwell. Captain Maxwell was it was sort of a crazy story. But he had a printing, he had rights to printing that were owed to him by the Polish government. They were owed originally to the English, to English businesses as reparations for property destroyed. So he had a he had a printing press, a printing company in Poland. Then I learned that he also had a castle in England for which he paid nothing. The castle had to be seen by people. It was, it, it, was a, it was like a tourist attraction. And you had to leave the castle open to public twice a week. So here was Captain Maxwell. Every time I turn around, there's another Captain Maxwell deal. And it tended to convince me that I had been offered a job as a spy which didn't, it didn't shock me, because I fit, fit most of the conventions for CIA and OSS involve people who are technically capable and linguistically capable, and usually came from upper, tired upper classes. I didn't come from a tired upper class, but I had all the other necessities. And I realized I was being drawn into what I would call the information trade. And that's what I hadn't trusted. And I guess I, I had sensed something was there that I didn't understand. 
No, being involved in espionage, uh, the way these professionals were, is, is not shocking. At least it wasn't shocking to me. I assume they always did it. But to be that close to being recruited made me, made me, actually made me laugh, but it also reminded me that the public, my poetry publisher, New Directions, with Jay Loglin, a lovely guy, but he had the misfortune of you know, having gone to Yale and having gone to prep school. <laughs> and this made it difficult for him to be a poet, which he wanted to be. And he showed his work to Ezra Pound, and Ezra Pound said to him, go away, you'll never be a poet the way you write. <laughs> he said, so what should I do with my life, said Jay? Be a publisher. Publish poetry. You can save poetry for the world. And Jay is represented as having taken for granted that he should do this. But I started to add up Jay's background. Jay was not in the, in the, in the military in the Second World War. He was 4F. And that's quite possible, too. But it's also possible that he was already in CIA, and they wanted him to stay there. And he was a man of great charm. He wrote beautiful, short love poems with exquisite syllable attention. He was also a kind of traditional aristocrat. But he had told me of a time, he, for some reason he told me a time he was running around at the end of the Second World War with, a, with an old college chum who had, was part of the, the group of people trying to find, discover the artworks that were stolen by Goering and other German, Hitler and other German officials. And he was part of it scouring around Germany and Holland. And Jerry seemed, for reasons he never mentioned, to hang out with his friend who was doing the, writing these reports. And Jay, Jay did it in order to say how difficult it is to deter, determine what a, what a forgery is. And it seemed to me that this was a story that seemed odd. He had no reason to tell it to me, so I just happened to be in a chatty mood. But it made, made me wonder how close this whole series of madnesses is to these countries that relate to each other by sneaking information about each other back. Like, what are the secret weapons we have there today? They actually, the Germans had three nerve gases, sarin, soman, tabun, sarin, and soman. Three nerve gases that could kill you if they landed on your skin and you weren't prepared with antidote. I had written an earlier poem about that, in which was called Trip Through a Landscape. And it was a poem that was taking up the trip through the landscape that had wreckage of Europe. And when I thought about it, I, I was happened to notice in the Brit papers a short notice about Captain Maxwell who had since become the Labor Party's Secretary of Labor. 
which I thought was rather wonderful. <laughs> but apparently, his yacht was in the Mediterranean, and one night, he disappeared. Later, the body was found floating in the Mediterranean. And the paper said it was judged to be suicide, which I thought was the most insanely stupid thing that they could have said. That man would never have committed suicide. He would have seduced the emperor of China. <laughs> he, was, he was a kind of, in a certain sense, he was a kind of forgery, but a brilliant forgery with a lower, with a, with a lower middle class, actually an upper middle class. I don't know how the class system works. All I know is he had an English accent. <laughs> <laughs> She sounded like an English shopkeeper. It was not distinctively not upper class, distinctively not lower class. It was floating in the water, like, like the British paper said. And like I'm saying, am I glad I didn't get mixed up with these guys? <laughs> I think that explains everything. <laughs> the Poetry Project has promoted, fostered, and inspired the reading and writing of contemporary poetry since 1966. Consider supporting us by checking out a reading, becoming a member, or donating at poetryproject.org.